Welcome to this sermon from Silver Lake Baptist Church. Our mission is to celebrate the greatness of God with all we are for the joy, hope, and renewal of our community. We are so glad you have chosen to listen to our message. We pray you will be blessed by your time with us today. Well, good morning. How are you doing? I said already. Hope you're still doing well. Can you turn me down just a teens? I'm ringing. There you go. All right. Oh, I got technology this morning. In case you were wondering where I've been for the first few months of the year, I was at home recuperating from rotator cuff surgery. Remember that ice storm back in December? Well, I slipped on the ice and did a number on my shoulder. Just landed on my elbow. I tore it up pretty good. So I got to sit around the house and heal for a few months. One of the things I did was I read a biography of Captain James Cook. He's an 18th century British explorer who, among other things, discovered New Zealand and the eastern coast of Australia on his first voyage back in 1768. I've got... A map. There he is. And so, just real quickly, you know, he started off here in England, and he sailed down through here, around through um, Strait of Magellan, back over here, spent some time in Tahiti, he wrapped around the world over here, went down, went all the way around New Zealand, and uh, mapped it all out, went up the coast of Australia, actually got... Uh, <laughs> discovered the Great Barrier Reef by sticking his ship into it and had, had some trouble getting it out, but it was okay. And then they came back through, uh, through here and around all the way back up. It took three years uh, to do that whole thing. And the ship that he, that he sailed was called the HMB Endeavor. The ship wasn't especially built for exploration. Originally, it was built to haul, to haul coal. But it made it all the way, all the way around. So why, why read about James Cook? Well, partly since my daughter Anna has been living in Australia, I've become a lot more interested in things having to do with Australia. <laughs> and the university that she's attending is called James Cook University. So hey, you know, I learned something. <laughs> Another thing I did while sitting around was to build a model of the endeavor. Yeah, so that was kind of fun. Um, I used to build models as a kid, but you know nothing this, uh, nothing like this. You can see it's coming along there. It's kind of hard to get it all in the picture. And the last part is all the rigging and sails and everything. And it, it turned out. I'm pretty happy with how it turned out. And, uh, you know, at least it was something that I could do without using my shoulder. And I'd, I don't usually have time to sit around and do things like that. So there you go. Um, and my shoulder's almost all healed now. I, it's got its motion. It doesn't have all its strength, but I'm working on that. It turns out that ships and sailing are a big part of today's message. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Speak to us this morning through it. Speak through me by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Will and I have been teaching through the book of Acts, 
the story of the beginning of the Christian church, written by Dr. Luke, the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke. Paul had finished this, his third missionary journey around the year 56 or 57. He returned to Jerusalem to cel- celebrate Pentecost, but was arrested and falsely accused of stirring up trouble. Roman soldiers brought him down to Caesarea to stand trial before the Roman governor Festus and then King Agrippa. Because Paul had appealed to Caesar rather than, to be, re- rather than be returned to Jerusalem and face lynching, the king ordered that he be sent to Rome, even though he was not guilty of anything worthy of death or imprisonment. So that brings us to Acts chapter 27. Acts 27, verse 1. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. You notice how it says, we would sail for Italy? So Luke is with him again. He's traveling with Paul. And so maybe, maybe as his doctor, we don't really know. There were some other prisoners being brought to Rome as well, and these men were probably condemned to death and were destined for gladiatorial shows, not such a positive thing. A centurion of the Augustan cohort means that the Julius, the centurion, belonged to an elite group of auxiliary troops. And as we'll see later, it may be he might have had authority to supervise some of the shipping that went on in this, at this time. But he had a body of soldiers under his command too. So verse 2, and embarking on an Adramitian ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. Now, one thing about this uh, section is there's a lot of place names and stuff like that. So I wanted to show where where all this happened. And so he started off. In Caesarea, which is right down here, and this, this ship that they, they, they get on is going to eventually end up here at Adramidium. It's kind of the North Aegean Sea. You know, Italy's Rome is way over here, so they got a ways to go. And uh, so this ship that they got on, it's, it was a privately owned ship that was scheduled to sail all, along the coast until it got to its home. So they're going to go along. The plan is to go along here and trade. That's what the ship is for. They just get to be passengers. Um, most likely, yeah, carrying passengers. The centurion knew that they'd have to transfer to another ship bound for Rome at some point. And it mentions Aristarchus. But they, we've already read about Aristarchus. He, he's been one of Paul's companions um, He's from Thessalonica, so he's from a ways away. He's from, you know, up here. Macedonian from Thessalonica, it says. And uh, he'd worked with Paul in some verses in Acts 19, 29. Ephesus was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions. So he was with Paul when they were getting trouble there, and um, later on, Paul would write in Colossians, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends his greetings. And again, in Philemon, uh, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as you mark Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, and my fellow workers. So he's, he's one of the, one of the uh, close friends of Paul, co-workers. And it's likely 
that, it's, that he probably wasn't a prisoner. Maybe he was just came along maybe as Paul's slave or however, you know, however they could travel. Um, he certainly wasn't really Paul's slave, but that might be how he traveled. And then in verse 3, the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. So that's just that little short bit there. Um, just one day, it's about a 70-mile trip. And, and like all the centurions we've read about in Acts, Julius sounds like a good guy. He treated Paul kindly and gave him some freedoms that the, uh, that the other prisoners certainly didn't get. Maybe because Paul wasn't condemned to death, but had appealed to Caesar. Don't know. Paul's friends he went to there were probably Christians that knew him and gave him extra food and supplies for the voyage because they didn't have, you know, like buffet and stuff like that. On his, it was not a cruise. I think it's likely that Paul had a guard beside him so he couldn't escape, but I don't think he was chained up to visit his friends. Verse 4, from there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. As I was studying for this message, I was thankful to find a book written in 1848 by James Smith called The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul. And this, another author had this to say about him. He was an experienced yachtsman and scholar who made a careful study of Luke's narrative in relation to the route which it maps out, a part of the Mediterranean which he himself was acquainted and formed the most favorable estimate of the accuracy of Luke's account for each stage of the voyage. It remains unsurpassed and indeed unequaled for its purpose even today, and this is written, you know, 180 years ago. Ancient sailing ships were much simpler in their design than today's are, and they had a lot of limitations, the main one being they could only sail downwind, or maybe across it, what's called a beam reach, a little less than 90 degrees to the wind. In other words, they were completely at the mercy of the wind's direction. Here's what a couple of them might have looked like. <laughs> it's a, an, obviously an early drawing. It's kind of hard to tell, but uh, it definitely looks quite different. And here's when you can see that the bow and the stern don't look all that different. A lot of the ones that you see pictures of from that long ago were warships, and so they, they kind of had some different things going on, right? They had different purpose than just carrying stuff. But generally, it had one mass like that, a big mass. And the, I don't know about the lower beam, but the upper yard was a, was a major feature, too. And the two uh, thing you can see, there's two rudders. They didn't have the single central rudder that we use these days. Um, they also didn't have deep keels. Sailboats these days have a deep keel down the center to keep the keep things going straight and keep help keep it upright too. All that to say is that if the wind was blowing in the wrong direction, they had to go a different way or wait for the wind to change. So here's what they did. They had to I'll, I'll show it on the map and then I'll describe it. Although they wanted to sail to the south of Cyprus, because it's kind of a more direct way, um, they had to go around to the north, to the leeward side. Because at that time of year, the wind pretty much always blows from the west, which is, the wind is blowing this way, so they had to go in the shelter of Cyprus and then go travel along the coast. 
When we had sailed through the sea and along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. So those are all labeled on there. You can, you can see what's what a little bit. Um, through the sea, it's where they crossed the open sea, and then they went along the coast until they stopped at Myra, which was a major seaport. All along this coast, there's kind of a westward current that helped them along that time of year and winds from the north, so when they were close to land, they could sail the direction they wanted to. Verse 6, There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. So in Myra, they transferred, like, like a bus transfer, right? They transferred to a large grain ship from Alexandria, which you can see down in the, in the south there, it's in nor- northern Egypt, um, it was traveling to Italy, so it had come straight up due north and uh, landed at Myra on its way to Italy. Besides carrying a shipment of wheat, it also, as we're going to see later, it also had 276 people aboard. So this is not a small boat. It was probably similar in size, maybe a little bigger than that endeavor that I built, uh, than the real endeavor, more than 100, 100 feet long. But it was a lot simpler, obviously, you can imagine. The regular grain trade between Egypt and Italy was really important to the Roman government. So regular, as you can imagine, regular food meant political stability. So these ships and their owners received special privileges. Skip the page, and that just would not work well. Verse 7. When we had sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty had arrived off Canidus, since the wind did not permit us to go further, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salomni. And with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lazia. So let's see where that is on the map. So they go, they went by Canidus and then south of Crete, which is not a shortcut, right? They're, they're wanting to go to Italy, which is pretty much due west of there. They're having to go that way because of the way the wind is blowing and with difficulty. Usually, the trip from Myra to Canidus, it's a weird name, would take a little over a day, but this time it took a good many days. Rather than going, yeah, I just said that part. Sorry. <laughs> um, in verse 9, When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was over, see, all along Luke's been talking about delays, sailing in the shelter of Cyprus, sailing slowly, sailing with difficulty, sailing in the lee of Crete. The lee means downwind. With all these delays, it had become very late in the season to travel in the Mediterranean Sea. It was considered very risky to sail between September 14th and November 11th. After that, all shipping ceased entirely until February. The fast that it's talking about, even the fast was already over, is the Jewish Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, that was probably October 5th that year. So, uh, back to verse 9. Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. So probably this was not a direct message from God, but from Paul, the seasoned traveler, right? He's been around. 
a little bit of a spoiler that it would turn out that no lives were lost. So that, you know, God wouldn't be saying that their lives are, they certainly may be in danger. The word for admonish means to advise or warn. But Paul certainly had experience traveling by sea in adverse conditions. In 2 Corinthians 11.25, Paul says, Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have spent in the deep. So not quite as safe a travel mode as uh, maybe today. Verse 11, but the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than what was being said by Paul. I don't, I don't think the centurion was in charge of the ship itself, but he was definitely in charge of his prisoners. So he decided to trust the pilot and the captain or owner who were perhaps motivated more by the money to be made from the cargo. So the centurion kept the prisoners on board. Verse 12, because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out the sea from there. And somehow they, if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. So in order to be suitable for wintering, the harbor had to be protective from the winds and the waves that the winds generated. I think the phrase translated face, facing southwest and northwest here really means more protected from the southwest and northwest. Otherwise, it doesn't really make sense. You can see Phoenix there at the, end of, at the uh, west end of Crete. Verse 13, when a moderate south wind came up, supposing they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and been sa- began sailing along Crete, close inshore. So this is what I like to call a three-hour tour, a three-hour tour. Verse 14, but before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Euroquillo. The violent wind, the Greek word is tuphonikos, a violent, tempestuous, fierce wind of hurricane force with whirling clouds and vortices. It's where we get the word typhoon. Let's see. Let's see this a little bit closer. So they started sailing, and there's, there's the Euroquillo. Euroquillo means a northeaster. This kind of wind change is a common occurrence around this part of the world in this time of year. When the ship, verse 15, when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along running under the shelter of a small island called Clada, which you can see there, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. The ship's boat, the dinghy or skiff, was used to transfer people on or offshore or into a shallow port. It's very common today to see boats and ships with smaller dinghies used for the same purpose. It was usually towed behind the ship, but in bad weather, it was hauled aboard and lashed to the deck. Otherwise, it could easily smash the stern of the ship in, in large waves. By now, it was probably full of water, making it much more difficult to haul aboard. Apparently, Luke helped. It says, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. Verse 17. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship. And fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis, They let down the sea anchor, and in this way, let themselves be driven along. Just some kind of technical terms in here. 
it says supporting cables, but it, that's not probably the best translation because what we think of as cables weren't invented for you know 100 years later. Um, but what they were doing was called frapping. They were wrapping strong ropes around the hull to keep the beams and planks from working open and leaking in the, in the big seas that were building, the waves that were building around them. The shallows of Sirtis, you can see the Sirtis there in the map, um, was a large area of shifting quicksands off the African coast that the sailors were greatly afraid of, and that's, the wind was blowing them right towards it. The word that is translated sea anchor really only means gear. A sea anchor is like an underwater parachute who would be dragged along behind the ship, probably from the bow to help keep the ship stable and facing in the right direction into the waves. Because you don't, if you've ever been in any kind of waves, even, even boat wakes, you don't want to be sideways to it, right? It really, if you, uh, it's, and it's a bigger deal when it's, uh, big wind waves like that. When it says, in another version, it says they let down the gear, it could also mean they lowered the upper sails and, and uh, maybe the heavy beams, the yards. And they probably did this anyway to keep control of the ship without taking the sails down entirely. Today's sailors reef the main, it's called to shorten the mainsail to reduce the sails area in heavy wind. But you got to keep some sail going so that the pilot has control of the ship. The ship can only be steered by a rudder if it's actually moving through the water. So by doing these things, the crew was able to keep this ship on a western course, away from the Sirtis, toward Italy, at least to some extent. I think there's another... Yeah, so they're off, they're able to go this direction. But that's all they were able to do. Verse 18. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. And one thing we may not think about as land lovers <laughs> is what the waves in such a storm would be like. According to Wikipedia, the largest typical winter wind swells in the central Mediterranean are 13 to 15 feet. I think, the, I think the waves were at least that high. You know, higher than the roof of this building. That's what Luke is referring to when he says violently storm-tossed. When I was in high school, my family had a sailboat, a small sailboat, 22 feet long. Um, we'd sail around various places in Puget Sound. And one day, after spending a few days in Dungeness Bay along the Strait of Juan de Fuca, Kind of by squim up there. Um, as we were coming back to Squim Bay, a strong north wind came up. At first it seemed fine because we were traveling south, but before long the wind created large swells of 8 to 10 feet. As each swell came up behind us, it towered over us, apparently much higher than 10 feet because we were angled down. Looking up, it seemed much higher. <laughs> and then it would push us along a little bit like surfing. And, but then we would reach the top, which is the only time we could see the land, and slide backwards down the backside. <laughs> yeah, it was terrifying. <laughs> if, if we had to be in those conditions more than a few hours, I don't know if we would have made it back to port. But we did. 
I cannot imagine spending days in waves at least twice as big as those. When it says at the end of the verse, they began to jettison the cargo, the Greek text doesn't really mention the cargo. It just says they began throwing stuff overboard. It was probably like luggage and furniture. The cargo is worth a lot of money, right? The cargo would come later. But it does remind me of the storm in Jonah. Remember that? And Jonah was trying to run away from God. And Jonah 1.4, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo, which is in the ship, into the sea to lighten it for them. Same kind of thing, right? Verse 19 in Acts. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. The ship's tackle means maybe even the main yard, the big beam, um, was hurled overboard. Why are they throwing all this stuff overboard? Well, even with the frapping that I described earlier, the boards of the hull began to work loose with all the wave action and let in water. They would constantly have to constantly be bailing the leaking ship to keep it from sinking. And any other necessary weight would just make it worse. The fact that the crew was throwing the ship's tackle overboard meant that they were beginning to despair of ever getting back to normal. Verse 20, since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small storm was assailing us, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. Neither sun nor stars appeared for many days means they had no sense of where they were or what direction they were headed. They didn't have GPS. They didn't even have a compass. It's way before all that stuff. They used the sun, the moon, and the stars, to, and they hadn't seen them. They didn't know where they were, where they were going. They were in the middle of a sea in a giant raging storm. So do you think it was only the sailors who didn't know Christ who were having their hope taken from them? How would you feel after almost two weeks of this? Were Luke and Aristarchus, even Paul himself, losing hope? I don't know. Maybe. It's easy to lose our focus when terrifying storms rage around us. But remember, this story is not really about Paul. It's about the God who created the heavens and the earth and controls everything that happens in them. God is sovereign, even when we are fearful and hopeless in the midst of great storms. Ephesians 2.12, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Isaiah 43, but now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So whether Paul was losing hope or not, God had a plan that he was about to remind Paul of. In verse 21 when they had gone a long time without food, it, they were without food probably because the ship's food was ruined by salt water leaking and the heavy motion of the waves bashing things around in there. Or it might mean they just had no appetite. 
probably both. So when they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Is this an I told you so from Paul? Maybe a little, but then he goes on. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Keep up your courage. Be encouraged. Take heart. You're not going to die. This, he's bringing hope in the midst of despair, but how? Verse 23, For this very night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. An angel, remember, is a messenger. Paul knows it's a messenger from the God who he worships and who owns him. The angel says, do not be afraid or stop being afraid, which is pretty much what all the angels say, right? This angel, this messenger, was reminding Paul that God had already told him more than once that he would stand before the king of the Roman Empire to present the gospel. God's plans cannot be defeated. One of the times is back in Acts 23, verse 11. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. There is good news for people that are perishing. Verse 25, Paul's talking to the men again. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. Keep up your courage is the same word we used earlier to be, to be encouraged. He really means it. Paul believed God and wanted his fellow travelers to believe him too. I don't expect to be caught in a storm like this, but I think we've all had our storms of life that can bring us to despair. Our God, the one who owns us and whom we serve, is more powerful than any storm, literal or figurative. He's able to deliver us and save us. He is sovereign, and all his promises are true. So next time the storms of life rage around you, don't lose your perspective and focus on the storm. God has a plan for you that, is includes, that includes a much bigger picture than the problems of today. Numbers 23.19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? 2 Corinthians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort, comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And I think of the words of the song that we sang earlier today. In your everlasting arms, all the pieces of my life from beginning to the end, I can trust you. In your never-failing love, you work everything for good. God, whatever comes my way, I will trust you. Verse 26, but we must run aground on a certain island. Yep, it's a cliffhanger. Tune in next time Will preaches to find out what happens. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for your word. I thank you for your sovereignty and your love for us. We, uh, we don't deserve 
the way you take care of us. And we don't see all the things that you do in our lives to, to uh, bring us to a safe haven. But I thank you that, you that you do care and you do love us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, check out our website at www.silverlakebaptist.org.